You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, Internet, and welcome back to Silver Screen Science. Woohoo! Silver Screen Science is a side series of the Common Descent podcast where we talk about the science of movies. That was a lot of S's. It's a lot of S's. I have alliteration. I'm a big fan <laughs> of it. This month, we have a double feature going on with movies featuring our favorite reptiles, crocs and snakes. Yeah. Last episode, we talked about Lake Placid. This episode, we the, are back. The timeless classic. Lake <laughs> the timeless classic of the last 22 years, <laughs> Lake Placid. This time we are back to discuss a significantly older movie, <laughs> Anaconda, from two years before that. <laughs> we did Crocs, this time it's snakes, and boy, what a what a discussion about snakes <laughs> it's going to be. Before we get into that, a reminder of the mission of Silver Screen Science to analyze the science of movies, not just nitpicking the what they did right, what they did wrong, but discussing the broader topic of science the same way you might discuss a movie's acting or cinematography or costume design, the science of it, how it portrays it, how it portrays scientists, where the movie falls in the grand spectrum of the overlap between pop culture and science. Crocs and Snakes we did because lots of people have asked about it because, frankly, why haven't we done this before for Silver Screen Science? Yeah. And a thing we did not mention in the last episode, these two movies specifically were actually requested by one of our patrons, Barbara, quite a while ago. Yeah. And other people have pointed out these movies as well because they really are the quintessential creature-featured 90s examples for Crocs and Snakes. Yep. But on to today's movie, Anaconda, released in 1997, produced by Columbia Pictures and Cinemaline Film Corporation, directed by Luis Losa. From this point on, this is your official spoiler warning. We will be discussing this movie from beginning to end. So if you care about hearing what happens in it, don't listen to the rest of this episode. <laughs> Will, would you like to please give us a brief synopsis of Anaconda? What, what happens in this thing? Happily. So the movie is about a film crew... Uh, going to shoot a documentary in the Amazon looking for a, a mythical, you know, a, a talked-about tribe of people as yet undiscovered by the, the white man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, by, quote, developed Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is a discussion for later in the episode. Right. <laughs> but that's, they're trying to find this tribe that they've heard about and are trying to confirm are actually out there on the river. They brought a documentary crew with them and they're going to go film the search for the people of the mist. And whilst they're out there, they find a crazy guy (laughs) who derails their adventure in the hopes of capturing a giant monster anaconda, which is what the rest of the movie's about. Yes. And so that's, that they're there for a very, you know, benign, a less exciting reason than giant monster snakes. <laughs> and then they run into giant monster snakes. Right. Now, we have a lot of thoughts about this movie. This episode, we are going to discuss the science of the film. But if you're curious to know our many, many other non sciencey thoughts <laughs> about this movie, we release more thoughts for patrons. So check that out if you are a patron. But time for some science. Typically with Silver Screen Science, we split our discussion into talking about the scientists later on the scientific concepts, but first, 
most relevant for this movie, the creatures. Yes. Now, there are a number of animals that show up throughout this movie, but we're not going to talk about those right now. We're going to talk about the snakes. <laughs> I mean, I guess we'll start there. That the, sort of makes sense. The eponymous animals of the film, Anaconda. There's more than one. There is. Uh, there's big ones, little ones. Uh, there's at least two, it seems, maybe. Yeah, there's definitely two giant ones. Because one gets its, gets its head blown up. We see its brain come out. And it loses an eye, like yeah. it, the whole thing, and then the next one's pristine. So there are a couple of giant snakes. Now, we have in Silver Screen Science, in fact, Silver Screen Science is where we introduced this concept to our audience and a little bit to ourselves of monsterification. Yes. We have talked about this in most Silver Screen Science episodes. We did a whole video about it for Dragon Con last year. Monsterification, as we discuss it, this is a thing we, we made up. This isn't a word in the dictionary is when you take a creature that is supposed to be an otherwise normal animal and give it a bunch of traits and behaviors that better fit a movie monster than a real-life animal. Yeah, so th this is a writing technique, basically. Once and again, not an official one. Right, this is an observation <laughs> of ours. But this is something that writers will do, both in books and movies. Like, yeah, there's books, tons movies, of movies. video games. And so anytime someone writing an animal into a story, but they want it to be more exciting or scary or threatening, there are a set of traits that they'll often amp up or change or manipulate to make it a antagonist right? instead of just an animal. They'll make it super big or super strong or super scary or its behavior is different. Now, if you are a longtime listener of the podcast, you already have heard about this, but the reason we bring it up and we redefine it is because... I think Anaconda might be the most severe example of monsterification I've ever seen in a movie. It's, and if it, if it isn't the pinnacle, it's in like the Holy Trinity. <laughs> it's so, it's ridiculous. These snakes are so overblown. We did our Dragon Con video and the whole uh, premise of our Dragon Con video was, here's a bunch of like, categories of things you'll notice in movies when they're turning animals into monsters this movie does all of them we could have used this movie for every example of that <laughs> every Dragon Con single video. and i think that the general tone of how the snakes are portrayed in this movie is laid out very clearly <laughs> in the first five seconds of the film if you haven't seen it anaconda begins with an opening crawl. Star Wars style. Of a bunch of text on the screen. And the text reads thus. I'm reading it. Yeah, this, of, is, <laughs> this is verbatim. Tales of monstrous man-eating anacondas have been recounted for centuries by tribes people of the Amazon basin. Some of whom are said to worship these giant snakes. So far? That, that, all right, that's reasonable. There Absolutely. are tales of uh, human-eating anacondas. Yes, and... and Big snakes often make their way into human religions throughout, you know, throughout uh, civilizations. Absolutely, at where they should be. Yes, most most definitely. Uh, here's the second paragraph. See if you can spot where it's wrong. Anacondas are among the most ferocious and enormous creatures on Earth, growing in certain cases as long as forty feet. Unique among snakes, they are not satisfied after eating a victim. They will regurgitate their prey in order to kill and eat again. Yeah. A couple of notes. In case you missed it, <laughs> all of it. It's uh, Anacondas are was good. 
There are anacondas. Anna, that's true. Yeah, you were correct. <laughs> Fact. They are indeed. Everything after that was just utterly false. Oh my god. So, let's talk about some of our favorite monsterification traits as they are demonstrated by these creatures. Now, first, some of the things they actually do right. The anaconda in the movie looks like an anaconda. Yeah, they have so they have an animatronic puppet that they use and it actually looks like I if you just showed me the puppet I'd know it was an anaconda. Yeah, it I'd looks be able to good. ID it specifically as a green anaconda. So well done. It has yeah. the beady eyes. Yeah, its mouth looks good. It's even got the extended trachea yeah. where it can breathe while it's e- very cool. It lives in the Amazon. True. Gr- also. Now, anaconda, there are several species of anaconda. Specifically, we're looking at the green anaconda. Which is what most people are typically talking about because it's the record holder for heaviest snake. Yes. Biggest anaconda, heaviest snake among the largest and longest snakes in the world. They do hunt in the water. Mm-hmm. Like we see in this uh, uh, movie. Piece of cinema. Piece of cinema. (laughs) They do go after large prey Uh, in the film. We see them eating, I I think over the course of the film, we see them eat uh, a jaguar. Yep. Although it's all black because every cat in a jungle has to be a black panther for some reason. Yep, yep. That that could have been my mini rant. Uh, Because I I thought of that while we were watching it. Yeah, that might be. I might come back to that. Feel free to (laughs) cut that out. Um, monkeys, which absolutely, yes, no oh, reason yeah. why they wouldn't, and people, and there are tales of anacondas eating and attacking humans, although to my knowledge, there is no def- definite report yeah. of anacondas having eaten human beings. It, uh, from what my understanding, and you'll probably know more about this, the only snake that has, that there has been like documented instances is the reticulated python, and it's like with children. Yeah, I think there might be a couple others. I feel like maybe rock pythons. Oh, yes, I do think I've heard of a rock python doing it. And to be fair, anacondas, there are indigenous people who live out there who probably aren't reporting very much. So it's very possible anacondas, they are big enough to do it. But these aren't outs hunting for people. No. Uh, Snake, they also constrict their prey, as the anaconda is seen doing. Most of the time, the anaconda in the film eats their its prey head first. It does, yeah. Which, we get that confirmed a couple of times. Yeah. Well, excellent. That is true. Uh, it's also true that snakes can regurgitate their prey if stressed or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's some there's some facts here. Yeah, well, there's some things that avoid being wrong. That's true. <laughs> Let's talk about... Now again, this isn't just to list everything wrong with the anaconda. Specifically the monster stuff they're doing. Because this is like a master class in monsterification in film. Is that because like we could nitpick everything they do wrong, but specifically, how did they change this snake to make it the monster of the movie? Right off the bat, it's supersized. It's so big. The implication is that it's 40 feet. I'm sure someone out there on the internet has done measurements mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. looking at the scenes to calculate how big the snakes are. But anacondas in real life, again, to my knowledge, there are... Often you'll hear it said that they grow 20 to 25 feet. Yeah. As far as I know, confirmed measurements of these snakes don't seem to get past 20. Yeah. But they certainly don't get to 40, which always brings up for me that question. And anaconda is always my go-to example. (laughs) Anacondas in real life can get up to 20 feet long. If you said 25, no one would really argue with you because sure, all right, that's... uh, that supposedly a little more than reported 
Was 25 feet not big enough for yeah. you? How big do you need your snakes to be? How big do you need? Like, <laughs> so it's super sized. Uh, they have the super strength thing going on. Oh, all over the place with this snake. Throughout the whole movie. This snake is just Kool-Aid manning it through <laughs> every single wall or set of floorboards it can. It goes through a window at least at one point. Mm-hmm. It goes through uh, the, the, not the floorboards, but like the... The planks. The plank, And actually the floorboards at one point yeah, in it, the movie. Yeah, it busts through the floorboards of a boat. It busts straight through a wall of a sawmill. That's true. Just And just like straight necked. Just boom. It's pulling down trees. Mm-hmm. It's a super... It, it, well, it's got the serial killer, the slasher character yep. super strength. It also, right, I, I noticed on this watch through, on the very end when, they're, when uh, Jennifer Lopez is escaping from it, it busts through a chain link... Yeah, screen, and not like pushes the metal off the frame. No, no, it goes through the middle of the chain link, <laughs> peeling it back like a banana. Also, these snakes have like uh, snakes obviously have no choice but to skip leg day. Mm-hmm. But this, <laughs> these snakes don't skip last five feet of the body day. Oh yeah, this thing is practically levitating mm-hmm. a bunch of the time. There will be scenes where it is coiled all the way around a person over and over and over again and is lifting that a whole coiled section of its body off the ground. When I, I saw one thing, because uh, at one point, one of the characters jumps off a waterfall to try to escape the snake and it catches them midair. Yep. And I saw a thing that calculated that like a person <laughs> that size with that build would roughly weigh this much. Yep. They fell roughly this far, which means they're traveling and they calculated that. The snake stopping that would was the equivalent of it catching like a over a thousand pounds or something. Yeah, because it of the momentum and kinetic energy grabs a person out of the air. It's just so so strong. It also has the super durability thing we've talked mm-hmm. about, which again is a horror movie. You know, Michael Myers gets shot and stabbed and pushed out a window and yeah. keeps coming because he's a monster. That that. Horror movie characters are all but unkillable until the end of the film. Right. This snake achieves that. It gets stabbed a bunch. And then at one point it gets lit entirely on fire. Yep. And just keeps going. It just keeps going. (laughs) Just keeps coming after people. Yep. And then gets in the water, cools off a little bit, and then comes back and busts through the floorboard. Just like whack-a-mole. It's it's just got all the superhero stuff. Stuff going on. But of course, and if you watched the Dragon Con video, and if you haven't, go check it out. It's on our YouTube. You know that my favorite example <laughs> is also epitomized in this movie. This snake is the screamiest, screechiest. It's, it's the most monster, noisy animal <laughs> among most movie creatures I've seen. It spends the whole movie howling and screaming and screeching just like a banshee it's ridiculous well and it it's so over the top like even just as far as monster movies go because like if the snake's on screen it's just making noise like yes like on a loop just and it's non-stop opening its mouth wide to scream and howl (laughs) at people now the reason these things are interesting is because as we've discussed in previous episodes Having your villain be super strong and durable and punch through glass and making all sorts of horrifying noises is great from a movie perspective, but makes no sense from an animal perspective. Yes. They have taken these, what should be an animal, 
and makes it completely, in this movie, I think, unbelievable. Oh, yes. By adding these movie qualities to it. Well, I think the thing that stands out so much with Anaconda versus other monstrified creatures, you know, like you could take a a bear and monstrify it, Mm -hmm. you know, but... You might just have to ramp things up. You make it a little bit stronger than a bear actually is. Right. Well, we talked about this in Lake Placid. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, yeah, you don't actually have to do much work to monsterify a crocodile. Yeah, like, they can flip boats. They can take down large animals. Yeah. They can survive a bullet wound if hit in the right place. Like So those things are in the realm of believability. Mm-hmm. And you just notched it up to 11 instead of 7 or 8. Right. But with this... Half the things the snake does actually goes against snake anatomy. Yes. <laughs> like busting through stuff with their soft, flexible skulls and making noise without vocal cords. Right. So like you've monstrified a thing in ways that there is no logic for it to be monstrified that way unless it's not a snake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And this is always so fascinating to see how filmmakers, and like you said before, book writers and game designers will tweak real life animals to give them these traits, to make them into movie monsters. There are a couple of other categories we've discussed uh, in the past with movie monsterification, uh, such as uh, what we described in our Dragon Con video as intelligence slash intent. Yes. Where in... In this case, you have this big snake that is chasing after these people that is using its tail yeah. as a weapon. As a whip. It's like Catwoman with its tail. Yeah, like, no, you, you're you not going to escape. What? Once I'm done killing this person, I'm going to come for you. So let me knock you over mm-hmm. so that you don't go anywhere. This is like a kung fu snake. Yes, that's exactly what I thought of when we were watching it this time. Is like, this snake knows hand-to-hand close combat oh you know close combat right (laughs) (laughs) like this snake knows how to handle its body in a combat situation like this snake is ready to join the avengers yeah (laughs) whereas real life animals are very careful about getting into fights snake tails are not used crocs again yeah crocs will do that snakes are not known for using their tails as weaponry well, I remember there's there's one scene where it grabs two of the heroes with the tail tip and starts wrapping them up from there. Yes. And, and I while we were watching, I heard you go, oh, "Okay." <laughs> oh, no. I was like, mm, "No, mm-mm. that's not no." Nope. Don't just like, don't like that. Wraps them up, and yeah, it's it's you. Well, it's using its body like an octopus arm. Yes, which again, very cool thing for a movie monster to do. Oh, it looked. Awesome. Completely nonsensical for a a snake. Their bodies don't work that way. This also, this snake also has the habit of being vengeful. Yes. Like it'll be trying to attack one person and then if someone else hurts it, it will turn angrily in their direction and go, all right, I guess I'll kill you then. You dare? Well, you just moved up to the top of my list, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it definitely has. Well, (laughs) the other one that makes me think of the intent is in the opening kill of the movie the first person we see taken by the snake before we see the snake right danny trejo it's the camera is being the snake a la jaws yeah and it's following him through the wreckage of the ship and it follows him up the mast of the ship and then it comes around to his face so it can look its victim in the eyes before it like stuff like that it's very (laughs) much it is it is killing these people on purpose 
for the thrill of the kill. Yeah, and they say yep. that they they kill for sport. They will regurgitate their prey so that they can go get another victim. Yep. Which is such a obscenely unrealistic thing to have an animal do, mm-hmm. especially an animal like a snake, which has to work so hard in real life to catch, capture, swallow, and digest large prey. Mm-hmm. I, snakes will regurgitate their prey if they're super stressed or or frightened or they really need to get away. Yeah, that is a situation of this prey is not far enough into my belly for me to move freely with it. And now a, a bigger predator or a person has approached me and I need to slither quickly. Right. So I'm going to upchuck this literally dead weight and yep. get away. So that's why they do it, not just because they're bored. <laughs> And then there's the flip side of the intelligent, human-like intent that movies will often put on their monster animals, which is that single-minded aggression. Yeah, the T-1000 just marching toward you. Right. And here's an anaconda that seemingly is going after these people, even though we see elsewhere in the movie that it has plenty to eat. Yes. (laughs) Like, we see it eat a big cat. Mm -hmm. It can clearly go after uh, uh, big animals. And then, of course, they do the blood in the water thing. Yes, they do. They do the, oh, I'm going to cover you with blood to attract the anaconda, which we've talked about before, is the, you've described it as the the stimulus equals response. Well, it's it's the video game boss thing of... You need to run over, do this action. That will cause the boss, whether they want to or not, (laughs) to follow their programming to come to that stimuli so that you can hit their big red button. Right. Like, that's how we treat predators so often is that if you do A, they have no choice but to do B. If I cover you with blood, this this snake, wherever it is in the jungle, is going to be drawn to this spot (laughs) to eat you. If you want to spawn the anaconda boss, you dump blood out. This is (laughs) is the ritual. This movie is like if someone listened to our podcast and listened to all of our monsterification discussions and made a list of all (laughs) the things we've named and then went back in time to the 90s and said, let's make a movie with all of them yep. in it. Yep. And it's it's pretty intense with this one. It's fascinating. Yes. It's so interesting to see all the different ways. And then there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't quite fit or fits a bit into mm-hmm. to some of those categories. Like the snake is also like it eats really fast. Yes. It regurgitates really fast. Oh yeah, like projectile. Yeah, it is blah 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 blah. And it's it's also the thing that I thought is the funniest to me. Well, maybe not the funniest, but among the funny things <laughs> is that they'll have it like chase people. Yes. It comes out like it, it, the scene where it catches the, the jaguar. It's stalking it. And then it comes rushing out of the, the jungle to catch this 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 big cat. Yep. And which is a perfect example of why monstrification happens, because even though. An anaconda is a huge, impressive, potentially intimidating, if mostly harmless to us. But still, Mm -hmm. it's a big, powerful snake with sharp teeth that eats big animals. You know, this takes down deer and small caimans and things like that. Like, this is a big deal predator. But the way they hunt is mostly by staying motionless. Yes. Until something accidentally gets so close that one strike is all they need to reach it. Right. They're ambush hunters. They're ambush. They just sit. 
They wait. They don't need to worry because they're a reptile. Yep, they've got plenty of time. So they can just sit there for a month or two. They also mostly hunt underwater. Yes. Which, while dramatic and exciting for when you want to have the suspense of, oh, you didn't see the creature that did it. Yeah, it's disappeared beneath the waves. Less exciting when you actually want your monster creature on camera. On camera to show up and you can show what it's doing. So yeah, it's whilst the predator is still impressive, that hunting strategy is less visually interesting. Right. To you know, it's it's like you know, it's the complaint many people have when they go to a zoo. They're like, why isn't it doing anything? Yeah. Well, because they don't just do stuff nonstop. That's the way I would tell yeah. people all the time when they'd ask, like, why aren't they moving? I go, well. When you're in your room, do you just pace constantly? <laughs> like, if I came to your house, would you most likely just be sitting somewhere? Yes. <laughs> because most of our time, we're not doing anything. My cat is behind me right now, just having a nap. Just, I might as well be dead. <laughs> <laughs> and these monstery traits are not limited to the big anacondas. Yes. There's also a bunch of little snakes throughout the movie, which are described as baby anacondas yeah and and they're always shown in these like hordes these, yeah like, these, these big nests roiling groups of snakes yeah which is not how baby no, snakes hang out not in not in hives yeah exactly and even the babies are super monstery mm-hmm. because they're screeching and squealing and screaming and then there's a scene where one of them kind of tries to eat a guy like, uh, and this is not like, they show some of the babies that are like three or four feet long. Right. This is like a seven or eight inch long snake. Super tiny. <laughs> that gets on a person's hand and starts trying to swallow their index finger. Yeah, it's just like. And the entire time it's just chewing on it and like moving it's slowly swallowing and it's just. Just yeah. growling and grumbling the entire time. And it's, it's, it's just a little gremlin snake. Yeah. And it's, it's that same, we've talked about this in other films of animals. It makes a lot of sense for your movie monster to try to go after an enormous creature and destroy it and kill it Mm -hmm. because it will not be deterred by the size of its quarry. But no, a baby snake isn't going to try to eat the finger of a human. And once they bite, there's no reason for it to chew on you. Mm -hmm. It's this very, yeah, gremlins, these little goblin demon snakes. Well, and it's something we talked about uh, in our monstrification episode that often that single-mindedness actually makes your monster, like, they swing between making them smarter and dumber. Like, the snake understands how to perceive who's the greatest threat. Yeah, right. and, and it's, it's target them, knock them over with its tail, so it has time to eat this other person. Exactly. Or whatever. Yeah, it's tactical in those moments, but then it's utterly stupid in other moments when a baby's trying to swallow a hand that's bigger than it on an animal that's still alive. Right. Or other times when they're bursting their way into danger, like they want them to be smart when it's threatening, and then dumb when it makes them seem unstoppable. Yeah. And so yeah, it, it they it, they're doing both at the same time, <laughs> and all this stuff with the snake it it's very interesting for this movie in a way that it isn't for Lake Placid because when you monsterify crocodiles, you're doing a lot of the same uh, things, but with snakes, the way that movies monsterify snakes has this very interesting overlap with the way that people in everyday life are prone to monsterify snakes absolutely because 
when you monstrify a croc, when you monstrify an Pacific crocodile, a, a estuarian crocodile, you're monstrifying an animal that does willingly hunt humans. Yeah. Like the saltwater crocodile is the biggest reptile on earth and they have been documented stalking us as prey. Here, you're monstrifying something that doesn't do that, but historically we have demonized. Right. A lot of the ways that they demonify, right, demonize the snake in this movie are also common misconceptions about how snakes work. Mm -hmm. The idea of snakes chasing after their prey. Yes. Chasing after people. The idea that a snake is an animal that wants to bite and kill and has it out for humans. Yeah, that that their purpose is to bite. The, The idea that a snake will just keep eating and killing and going after whatever. Another one that I noticed in this one is the idea that constriction means crushing. Oh yeah, that's like a good point. Hulk crushing your prey. That's in, in that super strength category mm-hmm. that they describe in this movie that yeah, it'll cr- squeeze you until it crushes your whole body. It breaks your bones, pops your blood vessels. We even see a person start to like have burst blood vessels. Yeah, when it goes after the cat, mm-hmm. like one of its eyes pops out. Which, for anyone who is unfamiliar, that's not how constriction works. Nope. Snake constriction is not about crushing the body. And it's it, there has been some research recently to suggest that what it is really doing, at least in many cases, is cutting off blood flow. Yeah. That it is constricting enough that blood vessels can't pump blood throughout the body and you go into cardiac arrest. Yeah, it raises your blood pressure until you get a heart attack. Now, I have read that there are examples of very large snakes constricting animals and breaking bones. Which which is reasonable. Makes sense. They're big and strong. But that's not the goal. The goal isn't to to mash your prey so that they're easier to swallow. Well, and that's the thing is a broken bone will not kill your prey. Right. You need to kill it so you can swallow it. A heart attack will do that. Yes. And so that's really what crushing is about. So this movie, the way that this movie depicts snakes is less like the monsterification in something like Lake Placid and more akin to something like Jaws. Yes. Where you have taken an animal that is historically, culturally, very popularly demonized and has all of these unrealistic monster characteristics slapped onto it in the minds of people all over the world who live alongside these animals, and you've taken those and put them onto this snake in the movie. It's this interesting mixture of what makes the snake scary from a movie perspective, and what are people actually afraid of snakes doing that they don't really do in real life. What things are people already afraid of them for? Right. And let's just amp that up. Well, and and to, to... emphasize that i i I think it's important to point out that many of these things are things that both of us have had to assuade people on oh yeah to explain that no they don't actually crush their prey no they don't actually want to chase you yeah you know they want nothing to do with you so these are strongly held views of snakes in the everyday by many people yeah the idea of a little snake trying to kill... You know, I have a pet snake, mm-hmm. and he's like three feet long, maybe, and, you know, the width of a large pencil. Yep. And I've had people say, aren't you afraid that he's going to, like, squeeze you? Or, like, if you put him on your shoulders, that he's going to, like, squeeze and suffocate you? And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I'm not afraid that he's going to do that, because he knows he can't eat me. Yep. He knows he can't crush me. And even if he didn't know that, 
I know that. Yep. Like this little three foot snake is not going to crush my neck. But people have this idea. I have a, a, a one of our friends, uh, mom moved to Arizona and I was talking to her at one point and she was terrified of meeting a rattlesnake and not being able to escape from it, mm-hmm. that it was going to come after her. This movie really harps on a lot of those kinds of fears that people often have of snakes. Yes. So watching this movie is, is on the one hand, I'm, it's hilarious. Like this animal is monsterified to the point that it's ridiculous. I I cannot take this animal seriously because of how divergent its behavior is from real, the animal that it's supposed to be in real life. But then on the other hand, it makes me really sad because I, this is a popular movie. Yes. Lots of people have seen this movie and this is the quintessential example of how snakes are commonly portrayed mm-hmm. in our pop culture. So I watch and I'm like, boy, this is really funny. But also it not everyone watches this movie and knows enough about anacondas to say, no, nah, basically everything this snake does is nonsense. Yep. A lot of people watch it and go home and have nightmares and and then they see a snake in their yard and they they think of this mm-hmm. well it's once again it's got that jaws it, it's, it's got, got that jaws, the shark problem mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. jaws situation of a popular pr- pretty fun movie if not very fun depending on your opinion of it <laughs> that really disservices the animal that it's using mm-hmm. uh and we know that people have requested we will get to jaws someday this is not <laughs> <laughs> someday we will talk about sharks we promise it's just come up a number of times this time i felt like we had to at least acknowledge that it will happen but this has that situation a little bit of you you really are portraying anacondas as evil yeah, yeah. lake placid at least portrayed it as an animal yeah a super animal but an animal Th- this is one of the most successful cases of monsterification because i think the anacondas in this film work very well as movie monsters oh yeah they're a really good movie monster like they're it's intimidating and it's doing cool scary stuff and they're it's there's tension and there's suspense got a little bit of the super villain villain vibe yeah it's it's a cool villainous antagonist creature at the complete expense of realistic animal behavior yeah and so it's a fascinating case. We could talk about this forever. But of course, it's worth mentioning there are other animals in this movie. There are. Uh, they don't get a lot of screen time. They're not particularly exciting. There are, there's some birds. There's some birds. That you said look like cormorants of some kind. Yeah, there was one on the river that looked like a, a cormorant or some some cousin of the cormorants. There's monkeys. There's the jaguar we see. There's lightning bugs. There's mm-hmm. uh, There are a few animals that are described as dangers yes yes you know there's a brief mention of leeches yep there is brief mention of piranhas there's the wasp that one character gets in his mouth and it poisons him and he goes into shock or whatever poisonous wasp as they describe it uh one that i think is really notable is that they bring up the kandiru yep they they mention the kandiru because if you're Putting a movie in the Amazon, you kind of have to. I guess so. So for anyone who's not aware, the Candiru is a type of fish. Catfish. Catfish that is famous for the alleged habit of swimming into people's urethras and getting stuck there. Yep. Which, as far as I know, isn't really a thing that happens. No, it. it from what I've been able to glean, there is one potential confirmed 
instance yes. of it. One potential case where that happened. Where one person who is supposed to be the person, they did a whole episode, uh, there's a whole section of an episode of River Monsters where they interviewed that person. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and went and looked at the Kendiru that was supposedly removed. But as much as I enjoyed that show while it was on, because they when he's catching the fish it's very cool mm-hmm. those sections in between are very dramatized and very over the top so, so it's funny that even the little animal mentions in this movie are well let's pick the dramatic uh overdone overhyped yep. <laughs> example and then the one the only other animal we get to see try to be scary is a wild boar a wild boar which runs it it's a it's a uh, bait and switch yes in the film like you think it's the snake and it's a wild boar comes running out which is funny because we saw that happen and we remarked that that's probably the most dangerous animal in the movie absolutely no that actually is terrifying <laughs> that yeah no that is an a- that animal actually will kill you and and move on being chased through the underbrush of the amazon rainforest <laughs> by a fairly large wild boar yeah that's nightmare fuel that, that's horrifying oh that that's what the movie should have been yep. are there enough movies about monster pigs i know there are some uh and at least one podcast episode mm mm-hmm. mhm <laughs> But I don't know that there's enough. See, that's one of those animals that movie makers, you're really sleeping on an actual scary animal. Yeah, where's the, uh, what was it? 30 to... F- <laughs> <laughs> where's the the 30 to 40 <laughs> wild, wild boar, boar whatever it was. the movie? <laughs> like, oh, that would be, te- it'd be like in the shadow of Kilimanjaro. I want the title in the style of 300. It'd be boars. <laughs> oh man, no, well, well, we'll lure them to the mall where their numbers mean nothing. <laughs> So there's a bunch of animals in this movie. Predominantly, it's the snakes. This movie is, like I said, it's like Monsterification 101. And that's most of the discussion we have for this episode, is the creatures of the film. Yes. But there are some science topics to touch upon. There's not a ton of science in the movie. No, not really a lot. Uh, they are going out uh, doing a documentary. Mm-hmm. The One of the main characters is an anthropologist, and the goal is we're on a documentary mission to find this tribe of people that haven't been contacted or filmed very much, uh, which is a, a somewhat realistic setting. Yeah, those documentaries exist. Like, there have been documentaries like that in the past. Yeah, there is a very interesting discussion to be had about the ethics yep. of, like, they damage some uh, ancient tribal constructs. Mm-hmm. To be fair, the bad guy does it, yes. but still... And then what I thought was very funny is you get to the end of the movie and like, oh, the snakes have been dealt with and everybody's safe. And then we find the tribe we were looking for and the documentary can still happen. Yeah, it's the the people of the mist f- show up and they 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 realize the what was it? it was like the Sherry Shama or something I think like it, that. Yeah, the Sherry Shama are real. They really are out here in the Amazon. They're, they're still alive. And then the last line we hear is I'm going to go get the camera. Right. Uh, and it's it and happy that, like, music plays and the credits roll and it's like hooray our happy ending is that we get to maybe exploit these natives in the jungle yeah that that, that's that's been a actual moral issue with these kinds of expeditions and documentaries is if those groups of people did not ask to be filmed or exposed to Mm -hmm. the societies outside the amazon then us going in to search for them really feels more like an invasion than <laughs> a scientific expedition. Yeah. 
Which is interesting because there's also a little bit of an environmentalist theme mm-hmm. in the movie with the the characters. There, one of the guy, actually, a couple of the characters in the movie are poachers. Yep. Uh, the bad guy, John Voight, the, b- really half the reason to watch the movie. Oh yes, is a poacher and he hunts and traps snakes. And a bunch of the other characters are appalled by it as they go on their river journey to go uh, find and film this lost tribe and all that. It is one of the things that dates the movie a bit in that a little bit. this was not uh, as open a discussion, potential moral issue back in the 90s. Right. So they, they, they are the innocent researchers <laughs> in this deplorable poacher. Yeah, who's <laughs> hunting stuff for zoos? Yeah, he says he's catching the snakes, live snakes for, for like private and, collections yeah. and zoos, he mentions. Which, at least to my knowledge, that's not, at least reputable zoos. Uh, that's right. not how they get they're big snakes. Like the, the two Burmese pythons we had at the aquarium were rescued for someone who owned them illegally as pets. Right. And that was usually at the nature center I worked at in New York. Most of those animals were either injured and taken into captivity or were found. One week, because we had an alligator mm-hmm. and someone in New York where they don't belong. Yep. Uh, someone, they had been found on the side of a road where someone had ditched it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's how, what will often happen with a lot of these is, hey, this was on my property. I called someone to come get it. There's two options. <laughs> right. I, yeah. Either we're going to kill it. Yep. Or take it to someone who can handle it. Because relocation is often not an option because if you don't relocate them far enough away, they'll just come back. Right. Like and there's if... been documented of relocated crocs traveling miles to come right back to the place they were right. relocated from. And if it was being kept in captivity in the first yep. place like if this was bred illegally or kept illegally well it's not wild anymore and yeah releasing it it can be problematic for it like the the burmese pythons we had we were in florida so like you'd have to ship them back to burma <laughs> like right <laughs> you would have to ship them around the world to put them where they should be no they go they're gonna go into the aquarium right. so the, the <laughs> zoos and aquariums that are doing good jobs uh, don't send out people like this to go catch big snakes. No, the good one. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take care of them and they'll grow up big <laughs> here. If like, no, that's not how it works. So there's some science in the movie. There's some science topics sort of touched upon, mm-hmm. and there are a couple of sciency characters. Yep. We also like in Silver Screen Science to talk about the way scientists are portrayed. Most of the characters in this movie are, you know, the film crew. Yes. So, like, the the producers, the camera uh, operators, who aren't scientists in, in the sense of studying the things in the movie. Yeah, but I, I did like that. They do show them doing film stuff. Like, there's a number of yeah. times where Owen they're like... Yeah, Wilson's the sound guy. Yeah, He's they, going out to collect, uh, I guess, uh, they, they call it something, like, B-roll of yeah, sounds it's, or something. You know, for those scenes when they're showing a background and they want to have sound playing... There's a couple of times where they're like, hey, can you take the boat down this way? I want to get shots of that stuff. Yeah. You know, can we have the the person who's going to be the face of the documentary stand in front of this thing while we go by it? Right. And they do have a face of the documentary. Mm-hmm. Van Pelt. Yep, yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> himself. Van Pelt himself. Uh, Westridge. John Hyde. Jonathan Hyde. Yeah. Uh, I believe. Who is their, uh, as you described it, their bad version of David Attenborough. Yeah. He's so... <laughs> prissy and and uptight and overly proper and expecting all the fineries of life yeah he's the 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 stereotypical like 
actor, the the uptight British. As I say, the posh British is yeah. also. It feels very much that stereotype that they're using. Which, if if this is supposed to be your your diet Attenborough. Right, your Attenborough or Irwin or Corwin. Or I'm offended. Yeah, hey now. <laughs> no, you do not you do not disparage Attenborough. Sir David Attenborough like that. I'm sure there are documentary narrators who are like that, the mm-hmm. same way there are actors who are like that. But I like to think the ones that are actually going out into the Amazon. I, I would hope that you're uh, a cool person and you're excited about Oh, yeah. This guy doesn't even seem interested. Nope. In what they're doing. He's just... And, like I said, I'm sure those exist. But don't put them in the movies. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There is one person who is the professor. Yes. uh, Dr. Kale, I believe his name is. Who is an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who knows how to find the tribe. Uh, And he doesn't do a lot of science-y stuff. Yeah, the most we see is when he's discussing myths uh, and right. identifying them to the the people that they actually belong to. Yes. Now, I do actually, one thing that I like about the portrayal of this guy that is a rather realistic uh, uh, and sort of human attribute of him is that he's full of, like, fun facts yeah. yep. about the jungle. Like, he'll, he'll, he knows the myths. He can ascribe them to the different tribes. He's the one that shares the Candiroo mm-hmm. uh, factoid. He also describes the lightning bugs. Yep. There's this moment where Will and I, because we're huge nerds, uh, we're kind of excited because Jennifer Lopez comes out and she's like, what are those lights? Are they lightning bugs? And he goes, yes, family Lampyridae. Uh, They flash their lights to attract mates. And she says, oh, do the males or the females do it? And he says, both of them, but they flash them in different patterns. And we're like, yeah, they do. Which is actually what they do. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) This guy's got a handful of actually, well, not all of them are actually real. He he is the candy roo guy. Yes. But he yeah, he's got a bunch of fun facts, mm-hmm. some of which are apocryphal, which is on, honestly also we we've, we've been guilty. <laughs> <laughs> we've done that. So yeah, he it, it does he does feel like a a semi-real person for a monster movie protagonist. Right. And he's not the, you know, so often in film we see the very tropey portrayals of scientists. We've talked about those in the past. Uh, Westridge, the the documentary, the narrator, mm-hmm. is very tropey. Yes, uh, in in some of his characters, but the the doctor, uh, Doctor Kale, isn't really. He seems like just a a guy in the movie, which yeah. is for a movie that does so much tropey nonsense with its main animals. Yes, it admirably a- avoids doing them largely for its sciencey person. Well, and I like that he also doesn't. He's not just completely informed the whole time uh yeah like which is another issue with the scientists for films like this often is that they just they have all the answer he has lots of fun facts but he's not immediately you know informed about the snake he's not immediately informed he's not an expert about everything yeah and he's not everything he says isn't the correct like there's one moment where they're trying to decide which side of the river to go down and he and the snake poacher disagree mm-hmm. and they go down the the way Dr. Kale says. And then at the end of the movie, when they finally end up down the way snake poacher had said, they find the people and it's, oh, I guess he was right. Right. Like he's not just the truth of the film. Right. Which is sometimes how scientists are portrayed in movies. Yep. That if, if the scientist character said it, that's exposition to tell you that's how it's working in the film. Right. And I like that he's not, just shown that way entirely. Yeah. 
So this movie touches on some interesting science topics, has a couple of interesting science-y people. Mm -hmm. The other person who's an expert is John Voight's character, who is the snake trapper. Yes. And does know all the things about the snake. Of course, in this movie, knowing all the things about the snake means you know a bunch of nonsense about snakes. Well, he knows all the things about this fantastical D&D snake. Right. (laughs) He's like, I've DM'd this dungeon before. I can tell you a lot about brown bears. (laughs) They have a bite and claw attack that you can use simultaneously. Like, that's That's what his knowledge is like. (laughs) Uh, interesting note, we mentioned the brown bear last time yes. uh, for Lake Placid, and one of our listeners posted on Facebook to tell us that the brown bear in Lake Placid is uh, supposedly supposed to be a cinnamon bear, a brown color morph of black bear. Yes, it's a black bear, but they have this reddish brown fur that are found in those more northern areas, Yeah, and which makes a bit of sense because we both had had a moment of... Yeah, wondering if grizzlies actually did make it over to Maine. Yeah, so that the yeah. cinnamon bears, which I didn't know that was a thing. That's so cool. How about that? Huh. So anaconda's got. Uh, there's a whole lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of it is either brief mentions or just a whole lot of monstery stuff. Yes. As I said at the beginning, and as you know, if you've listened to this series before, Silver Screen Science is about discussing the broader scientific concepts. Not just nitpicking the little things they did wrong, but we also do enjoy nitpicking the little things that movies do wrong. Oh, yeah, because they do it all the time. So we have a little section at the end of every Silver Screen Science episode for mini rants. Our opportunity to each pick one thing about the science and just be irrationally annoyed about it. Will, mini rant. I have to go with the Black Jaguar. That, so... In this movie, we see the snake take down a jaguar that is all black. And the point of it is to be like, we're going to have our predator take down a bigger predator, a la Spinosaurus T-Rex. Right. Even though this was before that, but still like, (laughs) that's the mentality. Yes. But it's a full black jaguar. And the reason that bugs me, and I I loved the movie Black Panther as much (laughs) as any other rational human being. But there's actually a video online I found. Black panthers and black jaguars are not a species. Right. That is not a thing. That's something that sometimes happens, kind of like an albino. Right. It's melanistic. It's melanistic. They have too much color in their skin to be the normal color that you would typically find, and they're all black colored or very dark or more. You'll see some that just have very big spots. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just a bit more spotted than your uh, typical jaguar. But that's not like a breed. Right. That's not a, a you know, subcategory, a subspecies, a type of jaguar. That's just something that sometimes happens. But it's been so popularized by comics and movies. Yeah, I wonder what it is about the Black Panther idea. I think that... it, it, it fits them more as nocturnal. And it, it, it's that it's the ninja thing that actual yeah, ninjas they're... dressed as farmers <laughs> and right. would sneak up to you as a farmer on the road and slit your throat and keep going. <laughs> they didn't wear all black pajama jumpsuits uh, <laughs> with things covering their mouths. They're going to get all sweaty and gross as they're jumping across rooftops. Like, but it has that ninja look to it. Dark and mysterious mm-hmm. and intimidating, which is weird. Cause I don't think that an all black Jaguar is more intimidating or scary than just a Jaguar. No, it's a Jaguar. Yeah. <laughs> That's intimidating in, which is another one of those like, in the opening crawl when it's one of the biggest, most intimidating predators on the planet. Right. You know, this is an animal that shares a continent with the jaguar. Mm. Yeah. 
and mm. and also and this is sort of a, a we can do the other mini rant idea we had <laughs> of the fact that this movie treats the amazon like the only danger in the amazon yeah yeah is the anacondas where this is a a part of the world where you've got jaguars and plenty of crocodilians more crocodilians than any other continent on the planet (laughs) you have like five different caimans at least one crocodile and one of those caimans is huge so yeah it's it's a bit ridiculous this movie's got a skewed view on predators (laughs) well my mini rant there's so much in this movie that i could rant about most of this episode was a rant yes but my mini rant i have to go with the face in the snake There is a moment about halfway through the movie where the snake eats Owen Wilson. It's a real shame. Ah, sorry, Owen. Wow. And then it swallows him and we see it swimming away and it swims past the camera. And as it swims by, you see the bulge in its body where there is a human inside. And it's it's human shaped. It's got the legs, the arms and shoulders. The shape of a human. And then as you get up to the head part, the image of a face is pressed up against the inside of the... So that, like, there is a circular patch with two eye holes and a mouth hole impressed into the side of this snake's body. And I... don't don't know where to start. What do... What? Why would you think that that's how that would look? it, it, It seems to give the impression that this snake is just a big tube of skin... And then an empty cavity inside where food goes. Right. And even then, like, if you press the skin against, like, over a face, it would just stretch over the face. There's no reason for the skin to go into the eye. Are there not eyes? Well, he inhaled right before. (laughs) I had that thought. He went. (gasps) So he's forming a suction. But also there's layers of. He's in an organ. Yeah. And there's. And anaconda skin is real thick. Oh, yeah. It's very thick. That it's just like this movie. We talked about this a little bit with Lake Placid. There's a moment in Lake Placid that has this. There are so many moments in this movie where I don't know if the movie wanted this to be scary or silly. Yep. But I know how it seemed to me. <laughs> but we were laughing more often than we were shrieking. It's so stupid. I That's one of those. It's, a, it's the kind of moment in a movie that makes you go, what? And it's so funny because <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to think that scene was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got older and went, no. No, wait a minute. No, it wasn't, little Will. <laughs> no. Sorry, little Will. Listen, I feed my snake mice. Yep. And at no time have I ever seen the the dead eyes of a mouse staring at me through the layers <laughs> of skin. That's... <sighs> Just mummified in snake skin. It bugs me for the same reason, and I've brought this up before, that... Uh, the fact that movies, TV, video games, etc., almost without exception in thunderstorm scenes show the lightning and the thunder happen at the exact same time. Yep, yep. And every time I see it, I'm like, you, you know that's not how that happens. <laughs> All of you know that. Everyone yep. who made this movie, yep. you know that 99% of the time, that's not what happens. <sighs> yep. Yeah. What a, boy, this movie... It, it's it's classic. It's a wild ride as far as observing how we can what we can do to an animal to make it monstrous. Yeah, you know. Speaking of the way the the, the sort of 
interesting absence of other predators in this movie we remarked while watching this movie that we did lake placid and anaconda as our croc and snake double feature and what's interesting is that lake placid takes place in maine a place (laughs) where you are far more likely to be in danger with a snake encounter and anaconda takes place in the amazon a place where you are far more likely to be endangered by a crocodilian encounter yeah (laughs) the opening of anaconda we were watching and i was like oh there's nothing so far that indicates this isn't another croc movie. <laughs> We're right at the waterline. We're moving through. This feels like the beginning of Lake Placid. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I, this this honestly might have been better as a croc movie. And you now that you mention, I don't know. I can't think of like at least not one that I'm aware of croc movie that takes place in the Amazon. There's there's not a Cayman movie that I know of. If someone knows huh. one, please tell us because I'd love to know of it. There's Australian ones, there's African ones, mm-hmm. there's American ones. There's one in Maine. There's one in Maine. Uh, <laughs> but I can't think... Uh, there's Asian ones. There's ones in the Philippines. There's one in... There's ones in uh, 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 China. Like, I've seen... I have am aware of or seen films from there. But I don't... A, a lack of South American... Here's what they need to do. They need to make a Cayman uh, monstery movie that takes place in the Amazon. And then they need to make that other movie that we keep saying, and you have to make a, a thriller about the Colombian hippos. Yes. And then you could do a crossover. Yes. Then you can have hippos versus Cayman versus Anaconda. They have had Mexican croc movies. So that gets okay. close. All right. That's getting there. But yeah, that's, I, we, we start doing these, <laughs> take our ideas, Hollywood. Come on. Well, you know what? Actually don't. No. <laughs> Cause then we're just going to talk about them and get annoyed that yep. you've portrayed the animals. No, wrong. Do it. You'll give us more episodes. No, that's true. Yes, yes. <laughs> Listeners, keep your eyes out. <laughs> we will betray you. This has been Silver Screen Science, our 2021 June double feature for Crocs and Snakes. We hope that you all have had a lot of fun uh, diving into these movies with us. Maybe you've watched with it. If you watch the movies along with our Silver Screen Science episodes, let us know. Oh, absolutely. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We've heard from some people who will say, yeah, I, I watched the movie and then I listened to your episode. And like, oh, that's very cool. We we have a lot of fun doing these. We had a lot of fun watching Lake Placid and Anaconda. These are always exciting episodes to record. And there will be more. Yeah. Uh, we don't have any current plans for more this year. I don't know of any movies coming out that'll spur uh, more. Plus, we've got Spooky coming up later in the year. So yep. our side project uh, slate is somewhat filled. But there will absolutely be more Silver Screen Science in the future. I can think of at least one movie coming out next year that we are professionally obligated to do a Silver Screen Science episode about. Yeah, we have to. Yeah. This is for you, people. (laughs) This is for you, listeners. We We, do this for you. We suffer for you. (laughs) If you are a patron, keep an eye out for the More Thoughts episode for patrons of a certain level, where we will discuss our non-science, just our film critic thoughts. Yeah. And if you're not a patron, hey, patrons get to listen to More Thoughts. So That might be worth it. Keep it in mind. (laughs) And with that, we wrap up this short series of Silver Screen Science. Thank you so much for listening. We return you to your normally scheduled programming of Common Descent podcast episodes. Spooky later this year. See you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. 
The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.